The Foreign Area Officer podcast is not an official audio production. The views shared in the recordings are the personal views of the interviewee and the host. They are for informational purposes only and not necessarily those of the Department of Defense or its components. The United States Department of Defense and the United States Army make no endorsement of its content. Hello, everyone. This is Michael Hill with the FAO podcast. Today, my guest is Lieutenant Colonel Wes Cheney. He is an infantry officer who currently serves as the director for CENTCOM Regional Operations at the United States Army Security Assistance Command. In previous assignments, he served as the Foreign Area Officer Branch Chief, SDO DAT in Cote d'Ivoire, and in Djibouti as the Chief of the Security Cooperation Office. He also served at the Army G357 and in the U.S. Army's Africa and Southern European Task Force. Lieutenant Colonel Cheney is married and is the proud father of two children. Welcome, Lieutenant Colonel Cheney. To start out, I wanted to ask, how did you come about being a FAO, and what made you want to pick this as a job? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I was an infantry officer uh, for several years, and, and, and honestly, I was just getting tired of being in the infantry, and I was thinking of, of getting out of the Army. And I was on a MIT team in Afghanistan, and I really enjoy uh, partnering with foreign nations. At that time, I, the Army used to have what it called a, a career functional board. It was at the seventh year mark, and, and you decided to stay in your basic branch or, or you could go into one of the functional areas. And then my board came up, and, and I looked into that. I'd never heard of any of the functional areas. I'd never heard of FAO. And I, I researched it, and I thought it fit into kind of what I wanted to do. So I, I put FAO first, strategist second, and then I put uh, to stay in operations third. I submitted the application for FAO. I put Africa number two, and so, of course, I got it. And I became a FAO. I'd never met a FAO before, I, but I, I really wanted to work in international relations, and I enjoyed working with foreign partners. And I was tired of being in the industry. And so I was looking for something new to do in life, and that was the way I came about that. What sort of research did you do to learn more about the job? I met a lot of FAOs at West Point, so I can't imagine how someone would have figured out what the branch is about without even meeting anybody that did the work. Yeah, this was... Probably 2009, we didn't have as much on the web internet for FAOs at that time. The branch website was good. It was all right. I did as much research as I, as I could. I remember talking to someone up at the proponent office, maybe a Lieutenant Colonel Matt Battison, because he's not an ancient FAO there. He's retired now. I talked to him a little bit, and it just, like I said, I didn't know much about the defense attache. I didn't learn anything about that until afterwards, but I, he talked a lot about the security cooperation and working overseas on the staffs, and, and that was just something I was really interested in looking to, to do. Do you feel like your experience as a FAO has been on par with what you expected? Yeah, by far. I think the first time I ran in a formation for PT was I quit in 2010, and then the first time was in 2021 when I returned to Human Resources Command. I definitely looked at an 11-year gap without Army physical fitness. I still stayed in shape by myself, but I wasn't out in the company, the platoons and that. And so I definitely wanted a break. I'm a veteran of Iraq, Kosovo and, and Afghanistan. So I, I started basic officer leaders course um, on 9-11, basically, just before. And so from the time that I entered the army, we were fully deployed nonstop. And so it, it was that change that I was looking for. I've been a fail now since 2010. I've enjoyed every part of it, all the different PCSs and training. It really was, I think, a little bit more than I expected. So for me, I thought learning a language would be a lot easier than it, than it was. So that's probably one of the parts of being a fail that's my biggest weakness. I don't have a 333 and I struggle to maintain my readiness and that. And so far, it's been everything I've looked for 
and what I expected, and I probably would have stayed in the Army had I not become a fail. Yeah, learning a language as a 30-something is a phenomenally difficult task. I want to go back to something you mentioned before. When you started, you went through the career functional boards, and now we do the VTIP, the Voluntary Transfer Incentive Program. Do you feel like the VTIP is a better way of assessing FAOs than we did in the past with the functional area boards? Well, by far, we worked with proponent the last two years to even improve the VTIP system a little bit more. We're doing VTIPs about a year, maybe even two earlier than when the Career Functional Development Board was. And it's key to get those spams in a little bit earlier because of the long training pipeline. When I did it, you literally just submitted the two-page application along with some GPA scores, a GRE score, and you just hope to, to get it. There wasn't any outreach. There wasn't any recruitment. And so now, of course, with the VTIP, we're doing a lot more recruitment through talking to cadets and all, and all the cadets that come through HRC for the ROTC every summer. FAO branch is out there recruiting those. We're going to go to West Point every year to talk to those cadets as well. And so there's a lot more outreach that's going on, a lot more explanation of what a FAO is and what a FAO does. And we do a lot more briefs to the captain's career courses now as well. And so there's just a, a lot more that we are doing to inform the population of not only what a FAO is, but w- when are the best times to apply to be a FAO compared to, to how we, I fell into it uh, per se, compared to now how we're actively recruiting people is, is almost day and night. The absolute most important thing is to get the word out early. I learned about being a FAO as a cadet. And that's really where we need to start as a community is getting the word out to the junior officers and the cadets in training. Do you think quality has gotten better since then? Be cautious of saying our fails today are better than our fails in the past, right? Because <laughs> then I would insult all of the That's not really what I was trying to get. There. I know what you're trying to get to. I think our training pipeline's better because we're giving our officers a little bit more time because we're assessing them a year or two earlier. We've done some experimental things with that training pipeline, but enough of, I'm doing a research project on the history of FAO. I'm writing a book, which will be released here in about six to eight months, called the United States Army Foreign Area Officer Heritage Project. And in researching that, our current uh, pyramid of, of training really began in 1907 in Peking, China where 11 officers, army officers began their language training for a year. And so a lot of what we're doing hasn't changed that much. We've made a hundred suggestions over the years, um, but at the end of the day, the, the skill sets, in my opinion, really haven't changed either, right? Fails are not interpreters, we're not translators, but right. we often find ourselves doing that for our senior leaders. I compare language as a weapon for a fail, right? A special forces officer has to be qualified on their M4 every six months. And to me, a foreign area officer should qualify on their language skills every, I think it's what, nine months, two, three, six months now. I don't see that as the sole basis for a foreign area officer, but it really is key because if you can't communicate with our partners effectively, then you're not going to do your jobs overseas. Absolutely. Um, but in the graduate school, we've changed that. There's a myth out there that it used to be two years. And honestly, going all the way back to 1916, when the ACS program started, it's always been one year for Army officers. It wasn't until about the uh, 1990s that a couple of the programs expanded to the to full two-year master program. And some people have gotten 18 months, but 
overarchingly in the history throughout fails, they've all gone to a 12 month or master's degree. And, and there's an argument out there of whether or not that's efficient or not. And, and I can see both sides is valid, but we just don't have the time in the training pipeline to send officers to a full two years of master's degree. Just not, never going to have enough time there. And then, of course, there's been a huge argument over the years about enriching training. It used to be called in-country training, ICT, and the effectiveness of it. And honestly, we've been doing that as well since 1907. So not much has changed in that area where we've been doing it. It's about a year-long program. For some in the Chinese and the Russian program back in the 20s and 30s, it actually was a two-year program. But overall, the immersion within the population has been the intent as well as understanding the embassy environment. I didn't propose many changes to that training pipeline while I was branch chief. Uh, what we did do was look at ways that maybe we could add some small things to it, such as going to the defense planners course or the defense strategy course and some of those other things that maybe can augment uh, FAO's training. There's a lot of debate about whether they should go into the attache course as well as the security cooperation course uh, during the IRT as well. There's some pros and cons to that. Most of the counters to that is really financing and funding. Because right. most of those schools go along with the PCS, and that's how it's funded. But a lot of our senior leaders don't realize that FAO training pipeline is the longest in the United States Army. It's longer than the Special Forces pipeline. It can be as short as three years and as long as four and a half. And we do a few waivers that are out there for some people because of that. But it's an incredible investment the Army's making. It regularly gets criticized for being too long. That argument will never go away. And senior leaders have tried in the past. One, one four-star general you'll see in my book talks about how he, he thought about making the attache program an online program. That's, that's going to be very effective. The book will come out anywhere from six months to a year. I encourage all fellows to buy it. I'm going to put the proceeds to the Army Foreign Area Officer Association. And it goes through a lot of the different changes uh, that have been proposed with the training pipeline. But we're over 100 years later, 115 years later, the failed trading pipeline really is exactly the same as it was in 1907 in Peking, China. That's incredible. I didn't know it went back that far. I thought the earliest attaché school was established in the 50s or 60s, but I didn't imagine that it was all the way back in 1907. In all actuality, the Folksulary was established 50 years ago, back in, in April of 1973. And so we really are right around the 50th anniversary of the official Board area, officer, functional area. And the book goes through all, all the history and the different changes and how we came about that. Now we'll have to bring you back on when the book comes out. We can talk about the book itself. Yeah, definitely. Same with Schwartz. No shame there. One of the things that can create a lot of tension is how our families react to and adapt to FAO life. And I uh, got really lucky with my region. You know, I ended up getting Latin America. But it was a struggle at the beginning to think of how my family was going to adapt. How were they going to adjust living overseas to living in the embassy community? How have you dealt with that with your family? How have you and your wife and your family adapted to fail life? Yeah, I was given one of the harder AOCs, right, to Africa. And I, I actually wanted Africa. Uh, my four choices were China, Africa. I wouldn't be in the BRICS at the time in, in, in 2010 that the BRIC countries were up and emerging. And when I applied to be FAO, I was dating my wife at the time, interestingly enough. And I found out, I, was, I, I got accepted into FAO because they did the same there where they accepted you in. And, and then two or three weeks later, they gave you your, your area of concentration. 
we do it almost at the same time now, but back then there was an actual separate time of about a month in between when you're accepted into the functional area and then accepted into the AOC. And so I found out I was going to be a fail. I was really happy. And then I proposed to my wife a couple weeks later. And so she said yes. And then, and then I found out I was going to be an Africa fail. And I was like, I hope she doesn't renege on the engagement. And my wife's first international trip uh, was a PCS to Djibouti because she was not allowed to travel for IRT because she was pregnant. So there's been a lot of adjustment to that. That was probably one of the bigger things where just life happened. She ended up getting pregnant and wasn't able to, to travel with me during IRT. I highly encourage as much as possible for our new fails to take their family members along with them during IRT. That's what's designed for to get you used to traveling overseas in, in a very short period, right? You're not doing a full three or two. And so if you make some mistakes about what stuff you did bring or didn't bring, you don't have to suffer without it for three years and several months. To your point, I'd be remiss if I didn't say there were some officers while I was in HRC. We, we assessed uh, just over 200 officers in three years. And there was a couple of them that called me back and said, hey, can I get out of this? My wife, uh, and I just told my wife I got accepted into this and, and she doesn't want to do it. And I was like, why didn't you talk to them before you did this? First of all, right? And so you'll be amazed. There's a couple people who, who, who didn't, like maybe just applied, not thinking they were going to get it or not. And then all of a sudden they did. So anyone who's listening and thinking about being a fail, highly encourage you make sure that your family is on board with it. It's not a deployment. You're not going to go for nine months to 12 months to a foreign country and then come back to, to an army base. As soon as you finish your language training, you'll likely never be assigned to an army base again, maybe once or twice. And so not only do you lose that kind of, you're moving out of the United States, but you're also losing that big army support that you've gotten used to over about five or six years. So it's a lot of change in that. You got to be prepared to live overseas, right? Every single time I lived overseas had it, its own period of culture shock. Djibouti took, probably took about six months. Uh, when I was in Cote d'Ivoire, it's a little bit less because that was our second francophone country. But even then, we still had about a 90-day kind of culture shock period where we were having to get used to the traffic, right? To stress you out. I, mean, I almost wanted a beer on my route to the embassy every morning just because of the stress of the traffic. A lot of those are things you need to take into account. We love the adventure, right? My son's 10 years old. He's been to 14 countries. He's had five passports. My daughter can't wait to go back to Africa. And so there's a lot to be said about that in, in, in that some of these are third world countries that you're going to, but we enjoyed it. You talk about managing that stress. And when we were in, in Africa, I had a rule that everybody left Africa every six months, right? no matter what. In Djibouti, it's not much, there's not many trees, there's not much grass, and so it's just not green. And so every conference that I had that was up in Germany, I took my family with me, go skiing or whatever, gave us a vacation to work. And then we made sure we took our female. And we also took about four days. We had a four-day weekend. We fly to Ethiopia or Dubai or something like that and explore the world. But it's nothing now for, I, I could pack for an international trip in 30 minutes and be out the door and head overseas somewhere, which is probably not normal for someone to, to be used to doing. But over time, and as you do it, you just get used to it a little bit more, but really is about preparing yourself mentally and physically. You definitely cannot go overseas and then just stay in your house, right? Because <laughs> there's some people who do that. Uh, you've got to get out. And unfortunately, we don't give spouses language training. Uh, the, the DAS does occasionally, but we just don't do that. And, and here we throw them into a foreign country. One of the times while I was in graduate school, for example, we paid out of pocket there in DC for my wife to take three months of French language training. And I think that helped a little bit that when we were out, she could order a drink or order food or if we were grocery shopping, she could order stuff and, and get through that. And so 
would highly encourage those of you, like if you're a 48 Bravo, your spouse learning a little bit of Spanish, Russian or Chinese Mandarin, those are going to be a lot harder. But uh, part of that getting used to as a fail is also doing, I, I can't tell you how many times as a branch chief, I, I would say during a brief that the F and FAO is foreign. If you want to, to make Colonel or GO, you're going to need to do multiple uh, overseas tours, right? You're not going to be promoted sitting in the national capital region. We definitely want y'all to do a tour there or one or two tours there, but foreign area officer means overseas. It's, it's a big job, uh, but I, I wouldn't be afraid of it. There's people who've had uh, children overseas, right? My kids went to the international school there, right? My daughter actually preferred the international school versus U.S. schools. She complains how many rules there are in the U.S. schools <laughs> and how restrictive it is. So there's a lot to be said about that. Each assignment does have some restrictions based on where you are, but there are some problems or obstacles for some people to overcome. ESOP is a big one for a fail, right? And so I would suggest if you're a MACD, a Married Army's couple program or an EFMP, before you apply to fail, you, you really think hard about it. Because those two programs are going to put a lot of restrictions on you as a board. In a previous conversation, you said something I thought was really great. And I asked you what you would do differently in relation to the family. And your response was, drink less, feed the kids more, and date my wife more. I wonder if you could expand on that. And why did you pick that as what you would do differently? I'm not afraid to open myself out there. I, I said drink less because you can get overseas. And like I said, if you already drink a little bit and you're into that culture shock, that anxiety that can cause you to drink more. Or if you're an attache and you're out going to the, doing the social circuit, some of the Europe places, they do five to six social events a week, right? And so you can very easily find yourself may, where maybe you were only drinking on a Friday night or something like that during college, whereas it's so fails, but drinking every night of the week. For me, it was from Kulsi Shark in Djibouti. I did find myself where I was drinking every night, even though I was drinking a lot. Uh, I just had to manage that and watch that. And then I was talking about my wife. So we got married uh, and literally packed up and moved to DLI the next day. We got married on a Saturday and we packed her apartment up on Sunday and we drove to DLI on Monday. And she was supposed to take the French course. She was actually uh, looking to be enrolled, but then we found out we were pregnant in a couple of weeks there. We rolled into being Fayetteo and, and we got married and had two kids and I was trying to do the studying in, in graduate school and, and travel, IRT travel. And so I spent probably my, half of my daughter's first year of her life. I was in Africa during IRT traveling, right? And so I say change more diapers because you're helping out your spouse uh, with their children as they're growing up is important. I, I wish I'd done more of it. Maybe I was a little bit too, too important to read up on some security corporation book or and working too late or my, my wife sometimes joked in Djibouti that my work phone was with my girlfriend because I spent all my nights with her. And so I just kind of, I use those as examples of work-life balance. I often joked that, that, that the army will be present at, at your funeral, but they'll just be folding the flag, right? They won't be sitting in the seats. And so you've got to maintain those relationships. There is a lot of stress of moving around and going overseas. And so take the time to date your wife. We often found on we were overseas, we... It was really weird at first to have a nanny that lived in the house or was coming through the house. But uh, especially in Africa, it's a lot of people do it. And once we did, it was great. And then you trust them. It's a big trust factor right there. Because one of our nannies didn't speak English, just spoke French. Work-life balance, I've found very few things in my career as a video had to be done within the next 24 hours, right? We, we tend to want to email automatically back, right? But uh, take the time off. Enjoy your family. 
make sure that you don't get caught up in the alcohol and drinking too much with the social part of that. And at the end of the day, when you retire, hopefully your, your family will still be there next to you. Family situation is the most important thing for any of us FAOs. Because if our family is satisfied and they're happy with what they're doing, even if it's rough, I found that it makes our job a lot easier knowing that they're living a good life and that they're satisfied with their situation. I wanted to change focus now and talk a little bit about writing. One of the first ways I got to know you was through the blog that you did for a long time. I'm not sure how long you had that going, but you recently took it down. I wonder if you could talk about why writing has been an important part of your work as a FAO and how it's changed over time. Is writing something that everybody should be doing? That's a good question. So there's a lot to that. First of all, I do believe that all FAOs are writers. Be it your security cooperation officer and you're writing a, a security cooperation proposal or you're writing as part of the integrated country strategy. You could be a defense attache and, and, and you're writing reports maybe on a security situation within your country. You could be a desk officer at one of the Army Service Commands or, or a command command and you're writing talking points for the combatant commander. And so if, if you're not a good writer as a FAO, you're not going to succeed. Uh, because every job that a FAO does, be it on a staff or a security cooperation officer or as an attaché, requires you to write. I actually took some classes through the internet about improving my writing skills. Well, that's, we send all of our, our officers to graduate school. Surely you're going you're gonna to pass graduate school because you're a good writer. So from that aspect, yes, I do think that all FAOs uh, should be writers. Should all FAOs have a blog or, or publish something in Military Review or the Joint Forces Quarterly? I don't think so, but the chief staff of the army recently said that he highly encourages the younger officers to do that, to professionally write, to challenge the status quo of their, their branches and to recommend things. And so based on his guidance, I would say that all fairs should publish, right? I would say, do your research before you do that. I've seen a lot of the same ideas being circulated around, right? I personally, I find it, I don't know, a little insulting when fails go to, go to JCWS for the joint course, and, and then they write something about how to improve the fail branch. I'm like, oh, you could have contributed to your region about national security strategy in South America and how to improve relations with Brazil and competition with China. And so sometimes I think we take the easy out on some of those. I'd see people go to Army War College and write their paper about fails. Personal opinion here, I don't know if anybody who did that, but yeah, I think we should be a little bit more disciplined Perhaps look at the Army strategic leaders list for your region and then write on something that the Army senior leaders are struggling with. Highly encourage that. And I have been quoted as one of the fail branches, more prolific writers. Honestly, that started with me trying to learn more about my profession, right? For example, the first article I published was for the Joint Forces Quarterly back in 2016, maybe, 17. And that article really came about from me going to a couple of training programs, learning more about security cooperation. And, and then I thought, hey, let me put a kind of an article together, challenging U.S. Africa's theater campaign strategy. It got published. But I learned about the skill set along the way. The blog you mentioned is africaosc.com. I started that in the summer of 2000, was it 17? I, I was a, on a TDY in Paris. And I had a lot of extra time on my hands. I wanted to write something, so I started writing a blog about security cooperation in Africa. 
I had no clue that it would catch on like it did. People like you or people are in DLI that were each week were reading this blog. I didn't even know who I was. It was fun. I had some ideas. I was kind of an informal writer on it. You got to be careful with that because you're talking about apartment defense items and units and stuff in there. And there's guidelines to blogging and, and what those posts. And so I, I adhered to all those guidelines. All those posts were cleared by PAO, for example. But your, your question about why I stopped, uh, one, I'd made a list uh, of just blog titles on a napkin at a restaurant in, in France. There were some 60 or 70. And most of those got combined into one or two topics. And so when, when I exhausted that list, I was like, oh, uh, I, I think I'd done it for about uh, two and a half years. The biggest reason was somehow that blog got onto it on a Chinese uh, website, like their version of Google. Within the website, you could track who was accessing you and from what countries. And so... It started with one person from China, and then it got about 100, 200 people every day for about a four-month period from China who are accessing that site. I was out of topics, and then I got maybe do an obsec issue. Plus, I was having to pay for it. So I, I just copied all the blogs, and I compiled them into a letter, and I'm actually going to publish them as a book as well in a volume. I'll probably sell 10 copies of the value, but I'll check my block in life of publishing a book. I just thought that was my ideas. I don't think, like I said, every fail should be a, a podcaster or, or a blogger. Definitely need to make sure you adhere to DOD regulations. We've unfortunately had fails who have written articles and have not gotten them cleared by their commands. And there's been some UCMJ action that come about because of it. So there's a policy there. Just be careful your department of defense representative and, and perhaps maybe if you question certain government around the world, and that, that could be perceived as a statement from the United States government. Just to advise everyone out there, right, right often, in my opinion, but make sure you, you stay within your lane as a U.S. Army officer as well as a Department of Defense. But it really should be something that you're improving your knowledge and your skill set for your future uh, jobs. And, and that's why I write, I'm writing an article, Joint Forces Corley reached out, they wanted me to write something based upon the current Tiger teams for Department of Defense for military sales improvements are going on and so it's on the back burner but i enjoy it it's a hobby and it helps me stay current with everything that's going on within the, the, the fatal world i appreciate you building the blog into a book there'd be a lot of lost knowledge and experience if that was just pulled off the internet and never saw the light of day again i appreciate what you said too about improving our knowledge i know in the past when i've gone and tried to write something I often think, what do I know about? What am I an expert in? And I'll write about that. But I think if we do exactly like you said and try to improve our knowledge through writing, it benefits us and benefits those who read what we write because we're learning more and we're producing more and building that body of knowledge. I wanted to ask you a follow-up question. To avoid UCMJ actions, who should somebody go to make sure that they're doing right by the Army when they're writing? Yeah, I believe each unit has its own publication policies. So just check with your, your unit. Your public affairs office is a PLC for that. It'll have a policy for it. Both my books will be submitted to my PAO. They're going to be like, oh, I read 100 page books. But as long as your PAO is cleared off on anything that you publish, and this includes an article for military review, right? That needs to be cleared by your unit. That is DOD regulations. It's your personal e. Facebook account is not something you do, but if you're officially publishing something or like said a blog, they may just look at it once and be like, okay, you're publishing a gardening blog, right? It has nothing to do right. with the, the DOD politics or whatever. And they'll just say, okay, well, that's great. 
But if you're talking about the, I don't know, the U.S.-Israel relations and whether or not we should be supporting them with foreign military sales, you should probably get that cleared by your PAO because you're, you're a U.S. government employee. And if you publish that, you're publishing on behalf of the U.S. Army, or at least it can be perceived that way. You know, for someone who's looking for something to write about, the U.S. Army War Colleges publishes every couple of years what they call the Key Strategic Issues List. The Kissel is what you often hear it called. If you want to publish something and you want to have a really good chance of getting it into a journal, that's the place to go because that's a whole list of topics that the Army wants to know more about right now. You already know there's an audience, which I think is the most important part. I know I need to do a lot more writing, and I know that there's a lot more out there for us to do as FAOs. We see a lot, and we do a lot, and the best way for senior leaders to know what we're doing is for us to write about it. To that point, if you're a, a new FAO coming in and you're, and you're looking at your in-reach and training, uh, that list should be the first thing you look at, and, and your, your entire year should be really revolved around the topics on that list because that's what the Army cares about for your region. And so if you want to be applicable to Army senior leaders, take the time during IRT and look at those problems that they've already put out. I completely agree. The Kissel is the absolute best resource for uh, in-region training officers to learn about what they should be studying and what their research questions should be as they do their trips. I wanted to shift focus again to something you and I have talked about before, and that is staying Army Green. What does that mean for you, and how does someone stay Army Green as a FAO? I love and hate the, the whole army staying green thing because FAOs predominantly work in the joint environment, right? But we need to make sure that we're wearing the army uniform. People are going to look at us as army officers, and we need to make sure that we understand what's going on in the army, right? Starting off, it's really easy during language training, and then you go to graduate school, and then you go to uh, OIRT, and you're not doing organized PT every day, and so all of a sudden you're far away from the flagpole. During IRT, you go a month maybe, and no one's going to know that you're up at 8 a.m. or that you're actually doing your work right now, right? It really does show a lot about the discipline of the officer. As I get older, as a senior leader, I'll meet someone new, and the first thing I do is I give them the Army uniform check, right? Do, do they have the appropriate haircut? Is their mustache in accordance with Army regulations, right? Does their uniform look appropriate? You would be amazed that there's some that aren't, right? People, some people are really quick to gain a lot of weight because they're not doing that PT five days a week, right? It's interesting to have maybe every Thanksgiving have a dress mess inspection and go eat in the cafeteria and see who can fit in their uniform. But all those are, are very basic uniform or basic army officer things that as an officer you should be doing. But a lot of officers were, were doing that anyway because they had to, because they were going to PT every morning. They had their first charge in that. And so... As a fail, you're out there really alone and unafraid by yourself, right? You're forward away from the flagpole. Your presence as an Army officer, ensuring that your uniform's up to date, making sure you're in the right uniform, and then making sure that it fits taking the ACFT twice a year or at least once a year. That's part of what the Army does. Then it's kind of always stay relevant to the Army. I'm an infantry officer, and I read a lot of professional magazines that are out there that update me on what we're doing tactically. Because the fail, we're working in the joint world. Understanding where the army leadership's going things. How many Emmy fails out there have read the you know, Army 2030 Modernization Project or the CSA's paper number one and CSA paper number two? Uh, foreign area officers are actually identified specifically in the CSA paper number one. 
as the enabler for the CSA's allies and partners. So understanding that and then being able to just speak for me. How many officers out there understand multi-domain operations, right? Because that's what the Army is going to and living to. And you can't wait till you go to ILE or go to the war college to get that lingo. Because if you're a lieutenant colonel, you're going to be on the G357 staff and you're going to be briefing the CSA directly. So you, you need to make sure that you're, you know the law as much as you can about the Army. It's just like language sustainment. You're going to get plenty of Department of State embassy stuff. If you're up in a combatant command, you're going to get plenty of, of joint stuff. But it probably is not going to be until you're assigned to an Army Service Component Command at ASCC. They're going to be back in a full Army unit again. Or if you're at G357. So it's, it's key to, to, to stay grounded as an Army officer. Make sure that your PHG, all the medical stuff, are staying deployable. I can't tell you at HRC how many times I've pulled someone's file like, and just see all the stuff that they hadn't done with just their medical, normal medical stuff. Uh, I understand if you're in shed and you can't get to an army hospital, but if you go on a conference, tap on an additional three days of a medical TDY and go get all your, your stuff updated, your vision, your DSG. Staying Army Green is a whole concept, making sure that you as an army officer are physically fit and you are medically fit and deployable, right? Uh, you would do that in a unit anyway, right? But there's no one forcing you to do that in the embassy. You've got to want to do that. Then just staying in the right uniform and then adhering to Army values. So many people go off the reservation at, at embassies and kind of forget that you're an officer. This is maybe immoral or unethical activities there. So when I say Army staying green, it's a holistic approach there because they're not going to, a Navy guy's not going to know the other Right. They're not going to know that. The ambassador's not going to know, or, or the best thing they're going to care as long as you look like you're in the military. They're not going to know if your haircut's appropriate or not. But when that CSA steps off the plane and you're the senior defense official for that country and you cannot talk army between that CSA and your host nation CSA, then there's an issue. You need to know what those talking points from the RCSA are and what they're going to be and how that relates to your host nation's arm. And then vice versa, you need to be able to compare those two because that's what the, the, the chief needs or the vice chief. And so holistic thing there, all the way from keeping yourself medically deployed to understanding the lingo of what's on the modernization plan of the chief. Yeah, I think all of us have seen examples of that where officers start to fall off on maintaining those army standards. In the end, we are representatives of the army. And to a large extent, we are also representing our branch. And just because we are foreign area officers now, we can't divest ourselves of the basic branch knowledge that we gained as lieutenants and captains and, and majors, especially in our partner nation interactions. That's how they see us. They don't see us as career foreign area officers they see us as our basic branch officer that's important too because there's a debate out there that we should assess fails earlier in their career and one of the main states that we've stayed at is that post company command really is where we want them because we do want our fails grounded in the army right we want you to be able to speak french but then also speak infantry and so that's totally correct what you said that's why we really won't assess them. We may assess them earlier, but we're going to make sure they finish their company command time so that they're grounded in the Army and they understand those things. Absolutely. I had a discussion recently with an aspiring FAO uh, here the other day at WinSec. We were talking about starting to choose people earlier as FAOs, but I said, look, the most important thing 
you can do between now and becoming a FAO is knock it out of the park as a company commander. That is the absolute most important thing you can do, not only for selection and assessment into the FAO branch, but uh, for professional development. You know, and historically, all the way back to the 1920s, post opening command has always been the standard of when someone transferred over. That's right. That command time is absolutely essential to professional development and development for FAOs. Now, lately, you and a couple other individuals have been developing the Army Foreign Area Officer Association. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why this association, why now, and what you are hoping to get out of it. Yeah, those are all great questions. To start off, I'm a board member of the Foreign Area Officer Association, the joint association with all the other services. I have been for two and a half years, and I will continue to serve for full two terms as I can. Well, I like that because the, the intent of the timing of this now is not really to compete with an association. It's probably for about five to six years now, the idea of, of, of having an army association for RFAOs uh, tossed around by some of our current senior general officers when they were colonels. And I got on that that list of talking about that as well several years ago. And we've been discussing it, and there's been a huge debate about whether it be competitive with the Foreign Area Officer Association, whether we need another association or not. Probably about 50-50 on the debate there. And honestly, there's a lot of things that, that the association will really do that the Foreign Area Officer Association won't for Army officers. And so what are those? First of all, there's other functionaries and all the branches within the Army have their own associations as well. And so it's not something new. And honestly, maybe the fail branch is a little behind on, on having an association. I tossed the idea around several times. And then last year, I was at a conference with uh, two of our failed GOs and, and I told them, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this. And they both looked at me and they're like, why have we done this already? And and they're like, go, do it. Uh, we fully support you. And I talked with a lot of people and the, there honestly wasn't really uh, anybody who was just willing to pull the trigger. And I, I took my knowledge of being on other association boards and, and said, okay, I'm going to start this. Uh, and so I, I, I learned how to code. I, I made that website myself on, on reading WordPress instructions, right? And I sat down and just listed out all the things that I thought the association should do. One is... Really having an, an association for Army FAOs to celebrate the, the heritage of the functionary. We're going to establish a, a Hall of Fame for Army FAOs. We're also going to establish an honorary society with different levels there. We'll have a, a quarterly newsletter. There's some discussions about an academic journal. Those can get expensive, so we've got to look at that. But really a way to capture the heritage of the Army Foreign Area Officer functionary. We kicked it off, and within two weeks, I had probably 20 volunteers uh, to be on the board. I, and we'll slowly, incrementally build that over the next year. The, our kind of a culminating event, we'll have a kind of a first kickoff annual breakfast at the Army AUSA event uh, every October. There's a lot of different areas we're going to expand into with uh, one of the things that the Army proponent and HRC has really begun and failed to, to do is a mentorship program. Over the years, we've talked about it probably three to five times that I know of as a fail, and it never really has launched off. And I think some of that is because there's not that continuity, right? Uh, the officer comes in and works for two, three years and moves on to some other job. The association's role really is to take that continuity on. 
we'll get some more retired officers in there. Right now, we don't really lack anyone who can advocate on behalf of the Army foreign area officers to our Army senior leaders like the other branches associations have. And so that's another aspect that uh, the association will play in. That's why it's really important to have retired FAOs on, on that board mixed with active duty. One thing that we look to improve is really everybody needs to retire at some point in time in their life, right? Some as majors, some as colonels, some as GOs. And so we want to really look at integrating ourselves along with some of the upcoming things the Fort Area Officer Association is doing, but along as well with the Skill Bridge program and helping our FAOs transition from that active duty to the, the retired portion and association. It really is best set to do that. We try to keep it at a minimal requirement to join $10 a, a year. Uh, we may increase that or change that. I, I'll, we'll see how things go. But the key there is to have some things as members only, right? To, some of that really is just to keep the Chinese PLA people out or at least make it harder for them to get in. They'll get in eventually, but at least we'll, we'll make it difficult for them to have to get to the information. We'll have a members list there. We'll, we'll publish all the fail branch newsletters we'll publish on there in the members only area. And then we'll have some of our newsletters as well. And so really is to build that community to, to talk army fail things, right? Because there are some things that are specific within the army fail world. We kicked it off in October. Please do join www.armyfailassociation.com. It's $10 a year. And then by January, we're going to kick off the Hall of Fame and Honorary Societies. And then hopefully by October, we'll have kind of a first annual breakfast there in the NCR and continue on with it. I'll stay the president as long as I can, or I'll pass it on to someone else. It's definitely not just something that I pulled out of that. It, it has been something that a lot of senior army fans have been discussing doing. I just happened to say, okay, I'm going to spend some of my extra hours and put some of my own money up front. But we welcome your ideas, welcome volunteering, and anyone who wants to help us uh, with it. But the goal really is to establish that army fail community and that continuity and, and advocate you talk about volunteers. Is there anything specific that comes to mind, whether it's time, skills, people? We, we, figured, we filled the, the Board of Governors up uh, all the way. Uh, we, we definitely need some, some retired Army FAOs, uh, if there's anyone out there. Uh, we want to make sure that we have their perspectives on there. Specifically, we're looking for an industry rep because active duty members can't really uh, do that uh, legally. Anyone who wants to volunteer to be on the awards committee or the editorial board, I think we could probably have some help. That's another thing we're doing. We're going to publish what we call the Army Fail Handbook. It's about 160 pages right now, but it should take you all the way from joining Fail Branch to all that stuff you talk about with your family, the health concerns, the moving, all the costs to be coming to Fail, because there is a, a bit of a change there. So that's another publication that we're working on. It'll be an electronic thing that we publish. We'll definitely take that and just people to join, right? And eventually join and participate. We'll have a couple of social events maybe there in the NCR because that's where a majority of our army fails are. We ask you to submit some articles to the newsletter if you want to. That call out will be coming out in, in about a week or two. Our first newsletter will publish in January. So if you got the best idea in the world to, to infer the fail branch, feel free to give it to us. And then we've got some historians that are going to work on capturing and furthering the history work that I've done so far. A lot of good stuff going there. Highly encourage officers to join, but, and I also encourage you to become a member of the Foreign Area Officer Association, right? Because there's a lot of benefits to being within that joint community as foreign area officers as well. Each association has its own nuance, and I really think that it should be part of both of them.
Yeah, I was. I'm proud to say that as soon as I got that email, I went and signed up and became a member of the Army Foreign Area Officer Association. I do see that there's a lot of benefit that's going to come from membership in the association, especially um, with mentorship. Uh, that's something that, at least for me, has been hugely helpful to me as a FAO. I've had some really fantastic mentors, anywhere from 05 to 06. Uh, even some of my own peers have been great mentors in helping me understand uh, what it is to be a FAO and helping me understand the purpose of the community and the importance of the job that we're doing. Mentors have been a godsend for me, you might say, in helping me manage my career. But it really is on us as junior officers to reach out and start the relationship. The most important part is making that first move, reaching out, whether it be asking for assignment advice or just establishing the relationship. Definitely agree. All of my mentors, I found out I was a major during IRT or first couple assignments. And during the halls of some conference there, hey, Colonels Cheney, I'm telling you, I'd love to get your ideas about what I should do during IRT or whatever. I still keep in contact with a lot of my mentors that are retired now. And for what it's worth, the first time I met you was at the ASIC conference in 2020 up in Garmish. I had been in Chad for two weeks when I showed up there, and I pulled you here for maybe 20 or 30 minutes. And you at the time were the SDO Daten Cote d'Ivoire. It was great to talk to you and to get some advice from you on how to manage the DAO. And it ended up being that I managed that DAO for the 14 months all the way through COVID and until my replacement came to take over for me. Having those relationships and being able to reach out to someone when you need help and you need advice makes all the difference, especially in places like Africa when your DOD personnel might be you know, just two personnel and that's all you got. And you might be the senior person there like I was as an 04 and having to figure stuff out for yourself. Having mentors makes a huge difference. So thank you, sir, for the advice you gave me back then because it really made all the difference in the year that I was there. Well, sir, is there anything else that you'd want to talk about while I've got you on? No, I, I would say, too, if you're a FAO out there and, and you want to reach out to me and, and ask me questions or for mentoring, I'm, I'm available, definitely there. I would just tell you that I would highly suggest you get more than one mentor because of people's experience in each assignment. Uh, that's why people often say, oh, I want to go so-and-so, who should I talk to? I'm like, well, you should probably talk to three or four different people. Because my experience in Djibouti, for example, may not be the same as, as someone else's experience or in the same cooked war. And so make sure you have well-rounded mentors if you do seek them out, uh, preferably within your AOC. But sometimes as you promote higher, having some outside of your AOC, is, is, it's good as well. People can't mentor you if you don't reach out to them. I wouldn't say sure. call them every night or, or send them a thousand emails, right? <laughs> They're busy. Um, especially conferences. I was up at 5 a.m. Uh, every conference I went to and I closed the bar down every night talking to everybody I could. So use those opportunities to expand that. But don't make a fool of yourself. I'm available. All of y'all have my email address, I'm sure. Feel free to reach out to me if you need anything. And please join the association. Please send me your ideas for the association. This is just not mine. It's not something that just I am doing. It is for the entire Army Payo branch. If you've got any ideas or if you want to help with it, reach out. And we look forward to your assistance. Thank you. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. You bet, sir. What's the best way to reach out to you? Is it through the FAO Association, and, or is there another place that you prefer if people wanted to reach out to you? Yeah, they can do it through the FAO Association. It's, uh, you can go on the website there. It's, it's armyfaoassociation at gmail.com. So feel free to shoot me an email if you want to. 
Okay, perfect. Thank you, sir. I look forward to seeing you again downrange.